This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Zaid Dahaj, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Thank you, my friend. It's good to be on. I'm just looking where you're sitting, and it doesn't look very sunny. No, you know, which is funny because I'm in Southern Ca Southern California, so it's sunny most of the time, <laughs> 75 degrees. But now it's like 50 degrees and cloudy. I've always been uh, an athlete at heart. I've played competitive soccer since I was four years old. Um, I've pursued the game professionally in different countries, such as Costa Rica, uh, England, Ireland. So, you know, I've always been interested in health from that perspective. Um, and, you know, eventually it, th this whole experience led to my father passing at uh, at 51 years old, so when I was 18, halfway across the world pursuing soccer, um, and he passed of, of, um, of a heart attack. So a preventable condition, the leading global killer in the world, heart disease, and that's what really led me down this path of studying health from, an, uh, from a holistic and obsessive perspective and, and leading down into coaching men specifically one-on-one -on -one as well. Um, every aspect of our physiology and biology is, is meant to interlink with sunlight directly. So if you think about the non-visual photoreceptors in the eyes, the skin, the brain, um, if you think about the mitochondria, which are central to energy production, ATP specifically, and, and just overall health, if you look at the POMC gene within all mammals, specifically human beings as well, I think um, it, it, taking a look at the scientific literature behind it, it's just inarguable that sunlight is not the most fundamental input for our biology. Vitamin D has a lot of functions. Um, I think its most powerful function is to uh, serve as, as a, basically a protector of the immune system. Um, so if you look at any of the research on vitamin D, I mean, it's one of the most well-studied vitamins out there, but it actually acts more like a hormone in the body. So um, usually the further away you go from the equator, for example, um, you'll notice that people have less vitamin D stores because uh, they're just getting a, a, a lower solar yield from the sun. And as a result, you can see various instances of, of more sickness, um, you know, within recent times, higher rates of COVID, you're more susceptible to it if you have lower vitamin D status. And in regards to how many systems in the body it touches, I think it touches almost every single system. That's how important it is in my mind. Okay, so in other words, what you're saying is that it's better, generally speaking, to live closer to the equator. Yes, um, there are some nuances within that discussion, but generally I think um, it is better to live closer to the equator just because you have a higher solar yield and, and you're able to take advantage of the, the sun, sunlight's benefits. It is interesting because if you look at uh, seasonal flu patterns over the decades, you'll, you'll notice that um, clo the closer to the equator you are, the less fluy people are. And the further away it seems to be, the, the more fluy people are. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a, you know, Southern California, I'm around maybe 33rd, 34th latitude. Um, and it's incredible because I spend as much time as I can under the sun. I've built my solar callus and, and that's another discussion we can go into. But um, I haven't been sick in, in years. I mean, the last time I do recall getting COVID at the height of it for, for about a week. But other than that, I can't recall having the flu or any sort of other sickness. Uh, but OK, so then how does that apply then to people who live, say, in Canada or in, you know, Norway or like Siberia or Russia or whatever? I mean, yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, I, I think even though I glorify the equator and I think there are a lot of benefits to living closer to the equator, we have to take into account the genetic perspective. So um, we, we know through the work of Dr. Doug Wallace that our mitochondria are passed down solely from our mothers. 
and mitochondrial haplotype plays a big role in regards to whether people do better under more sunlight or whether they do better under more cold. So cold definitely has a big impact to play in terms of immunity, lowering chronic inflammation, things of that nature. And I think cold is a big discussion when it comes to avoiding sickness. And you'll hear many things on the internet, such as, you know, if you go out in the cold, you, you could get sick. But I think that's been disproven because at the end of the day, viruses cause sickness, um, not cold temperature, so to speak. So I, I do think the cold plays a really big role there. Sunlight is not sunlight. I mean, it, there are degrees of it, depending on where in the world you are and what time of the day, surely. Yes. So depending on your location, um, the intensity of the sunlight will range. But then you have different factors. So if you live um, at a higher altitude, that allows you to get more UV onto your skin and into your system, uh, UVA and UVB specifically. And then, you know, that's just one factor involved. But in regards to and anywhere in the world, if you are absorbing natural light, you're generally getting the full light spectrum just to various degrees, depending on location, weather, um, altitude, things like that. So when you say full light spectrum, what do you mean? So we're talking about uh, blue lights, natural blue light, um, the full red light spectrum. So uh, near infrared, red, far infrared. We're talking about UVA, UVB and UVC. And then um, there, there's quite a broad range, but those are pretty much the main players when we're talking about full light spectrum. And then violet and, and things of that nature. But assuming that you have most of your skin in the game. So if you have to have most of your skin exposed in order to gain most of the benefit, um, specifically UVA and UVB. But you know, even if you're outside, you don't have sunglasses on, you're still getting an incredible amount of red and near infrared into your system. Yeah, that's a great comment. Um, I was just chatting recently with my mother about about that, and uh, and she says it's better to have less clothing on altogether when you're standing in the sun. Is it, and, and you're saying that's correct? Absolutely, and it, it goes directly against what centralized medicine will tell you because they'll tell you to practice sun avoidance, use sunscreen, sunglasses. Um, but I think in general that does more harm than it actually does good for people. Why? Well, there's a lot to it. Um, if we're if we're talking about sun avoidance, um, you know, through Sweden, Sweden actually did a, a long-term longitudinal study on this. They found that sun avoidance in general is as strong a, of a magnitude for overall um, mortality cause as, as smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. So um, we're talking about the vitamin, the benefits of vitamin D. If you're clothed up, then you're not getting those vitamin D benefits. Um, if you have sunglasses on, then that interrupts the full light spectrum from getting into the eye, which is the gateway of your, your body. And that leads directly into the POMC gene within your brain. And, and that leads to the, to the biological peptides that are produced through that. Um, so it, it comes from many different perspectives, but essentially you're just manipulating the full light spectrum to be more detrimental as opposed to more beneficial. It's interesting. A couple of years ago, I had a conversation with, um, with the professor or Dr. Stephanie Sennett from MIT. And she, in passing, said to me that uh, she no longer wears uh, sunglasses uh, or sunscreen. So yeah, I can break it down. I mean, with sunglasses specifically, um, when, you, when you put a filter or a lens over the eye, um, you're blocking light from getting into the eye and then from stimulating something called, um, uh, called alpha melanocyte stimulating hormone. So this is, the, this is one of the peptides that actually produces melanin, which is protective of the skin. It blocks 99% of all UV. 
And more importantly, it actually sends the signal to your body to produce melanin. So if you're blocking this with sunglasses, then you'll notice that it's much quick, much easier to burn, actually. And I've noticed this, this in clients as well. When they take the sunglasses off and they focus on a few other things, burning goes away completely because they're allowing their body to function optimally instead of just you know using sunglasses in this case. But why then do we wear sunglasses? <laughs> well, you know, I think it's more of an aesthetic thing. It's more of a, a consumerist, capitalist type of um, situation or tool where people are, are led to believe that they need sunglasses, not only for aesthetic reasons, but if you look at centralized medicine's philosophy, they believe that you need them in order to pr protect the eyes from UV. But isn't there an argument to be made with, with glare? With glare, yes. I think glare is problematic, which is why I put in the nuance of if you're snowing or if you're snowboarding, if you're skiing, if you're in an environment where light is magnified to a, to a higher degree, then I think it's, uh, there's definitely a use case for any eye protection. But when you take a look at most people, I mean, 90 to 95 percent of their time is just out in the park, inside. Um, you're, you're not going to have that, that problem of glare. In, in a shopping mall with sunglasses on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's no need. <laughs> um, I'll give you an example uh, where I actually tested this on myself. Uh, so my wife and I, a couple months ago, we went away. We went 4 by 4 in the desert, uh, just, just north of South Africa, the Kalahari Desert. I don't know if you've heard of it. And mm -hmm. uh, we went camping. And of course, because it's a desert, it's a huge amount of sand. So there was naturally... a very 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 big amount of glare so at some at some points during the day i would put on the sunglasses simply because it was just too much on my eyes are you saying that that was okay yeah that's that's completely fine in my mind because we we do know that glare does damage the eye um, and you want to protect your vision obviously but my my case is that most people do not need sunglasses most of the time they're not in those special circumstances and in order to gain the benefits of light you need to have your eyes in the game and so um and we know that i mean there was a study done that actually showed that violet light actually suppresses the egr1 gene which or it it, it activates the egr1 gene which actually suppresses myopia so you know, myopia is a huge problem today. And just the fact that people are not getting outside and they're wearing sunglasses or wearing contact lenses, that's a big problem. So are you saying that a, a good rule of thumb is to, as much as possible, not wear sunglasses? Correct, yes. What about sunscreen? Sunscreen's another interesting one. Um, if you, first of all, if you're wearing sunscreen, we know that sunscreen is designed to block UVA and UVB. UVA and UVB actually have a few benefits to them. For example, UVA stimulates nitric oxide in the skin, which then stimulates nitric oxide in the blood vessels. Nitric oxide is particularly interesting because it's a, a vasodilator, meaning it opens up the blood vessels, and this just allows for better cardiovascular function. Um, so you're blocking that if you're using sunscreen. And then UVB, that's where vitamin D3 is produced. So you, you, don't, you, you stop the process of vitamin D3 from even being activated by using sunscreen. And then you can get into problems such as you're altering the, the light spectrum to focus more blue light on the skin, which is more damaging inherently. Um, and, and if you consider that most people have atrophic skin, 
which just means weak and dysfunctional skin because they don't go outside, then that is, um, that is another reason why sunscreen is problematic. It's only making the situation worse for people. Going outside more often uh, without sunscreen, without sunglasses, it actually strengthens your skin and strengthens your eyes. Yes, but only if you do midday sun, sun bathing. Um, what I like to preface this with is that if people focus more on AM sunlight without the UVA and UVB first, then they lead themselves to um, really priming their skin to, to better handle UVA and UVB midday conditions. Early morning sunlight, when you sunbathe in the early morning, anywhere from sunrise to about 8 or 9 a.m., depending on your location, it actually produces a skin protein known as filigrin, which is protective of the skin. So it hydrates the skin, it protects the skin, and it actually primes your skin for um, a better uh, a better ability to handle higher UVA and UVB conditions when you do sunbathe during midday. So it's like one of the most powerful things in order to avoid burns, to make sure that you build a proper solar callus. Whatever people can do, I mean, if you wanna work in the garden with most of your skin exposed, absolutely. I, I typically like to take calls in the morning, um, just walk around, get my 10,000 steps in. So, you know, people have a lot of leeway just so long as they, they have the majority of their skin exposed to sunlight. I thought that any amount of skin will absorb the sunlight and then it travels through your body. It doesn't stay in that, in that particular region of your body. Is that, is that wrong? Uh, that's correct from the perspective of red and near-infrared light. So what, what that type of light actually does is it diffuses throughout the body and it has more of a systemic effect. So it's not only localized to, let's say, the chest or the back, but um, when, you, when you talk about getting your skin in the game, we have to understand that your skin is loaded with these things called non-visual photoreceptors, opsins, and they are inherently light detectors. So for example, melanopsin within the skin, and it's found in many other places, but uh, within the skin is actually a blue light detector. So if we talk about circadian biology, another fundamental area of human health, then I think it's very important for people to expose most of their skin and if you look at, let's say, rates of melanoma, for example, when you look at the research, a lot of the melanoma actually takes place in areas where the, the skin is not exposed to sunlight. So that's a very interesting thing to catch on to and really to dive deep on. Okay, but now what about the differences between people? I mean, like you have white people and black people and Asians and all that sort of thing. Yeah, big differences. So um, the main difference here is just the... Um, the type of melanin involved. So for me or you, for example, since we have darker skin, we have more eumelanin, which is uh, responsible for the blacks or, or browns in nature. If you're talking about a Scandinavian or lighter skinned people, then they have more pheomelanin, which um, is responsible for more of the reds, oranges, yellows, pinks in nature. And this is also why lighter skinned people tan as more of a reddish kind of pinkish. Uh, type of color. But in regards to like either way, regardless of your skin type or your haplotype, um, every, every mammal, every human being is able to produce more melanin if they do the right things around light. I mean, you know how it goes, right? You'll, you'll, you'll have those super white people who are almost see-through. They, they often have ginger hair or red hair or whatever. They just burn. So same concept with them, actually, because I've, I've worked with people who are redheads, gingers, you know, and I see the same results across the board, regardless of skin type, focusing more on AM sunlight, um, progressively building your solar callus uh, through midday exposure. And then one of the more important things is uh, blocking artificial light past sunset as well just to maintain that circadian rhythm, circadian biology, and then make sure the body's function functioning optimally.
When you talk about solar callus, what do you mean? So the, the best way that I've found to get this across to people is if you are a beginner who's new to the gym, um, would you try and squat 250 pounds off the rack immediately? Well, I'm a guy, so yes. <laughs> <laughs> of, of course. You get my point. Like yeah. most people who enter the gym, they're not going to try to do that because they're going to hurt themselves. They don't have they, they don't have that adaptation developed. And so when it comes to progressive overload in the gym, this concept of uh, applying applying um, this hormetic effect and then getting stronger over time, the same thing applies to sunlight exposure. So that's why I bring in the solar callus, because the same way you develop a callus from your hands through weightlifting is the same way that you would develop a callus on your skin in the form of melanin. Um, through some I'm guessing a good way to, 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 to gym actually is to gym outside. Oh, it's, it's the best way by far. Uh, because people need to consider this. Most gyms in whatever area you focus on are lit with artificial blue light. And if we go into artificial blue light, that has a whole range of negative health effects that um, are, are well backed in the scientific literature. And that's mainly the reason why I want people to get outside and to train regardless of what they're doing, because it's just going to allow your body and your mitochondria to function more optimally instead of, you know, being inside under artificial light. Let's focus first on the mitochondria. So if you focus on the electron transport chain, there are about five steps, let's say five complexes within that uh, process. The last process, complex five, um, involves uh, these, these tiny biological nanomotors that actually are responsible for producing ATP. And the thing about these nanomotors is that they actually run, they operate efficiently on both free electrons and red and near-infrared light from the sun. So considering that the mitochondria are basically the foundation of all health, in my opinion, and, the found, and, and once you destroy the mitochondria, that leads to all types of chronic disease as well, then uh, we begin to view artificial light from this perspective that it's actually destroying energy production within the body because it causes dysfunction to the mitochondria. And there are other things as well, like it fundamentally um, throws off your circadian rhythm, which I mean, circadian biology and, and chronic disease have very strong links. It, uh, it directly damages the skin integrity, so it contributes to atrophic skin. And um, it also, whatever damages the skin as well, damages the brain and the eyes because there's something called neuro, neuroectoderm which just refers to the fact that your skin, eyes, and brain are made of the same tissue when you're an embryo in, in your mother's womb. Now, everybody lives indoors at night. I mean, I, nobody goes to bed when the sun goes down. So you end up sitting watching TV or you lie in bed and you read a book and all that sort of thing. Where are the pros and the cons here? Well, pros, I honestly don't think there are any pros to living under artificial light, especially after sunset just because of the toll that it takes on our biology. Um, the cons, I mean, there, are, there is a long list that have to do with biological function, as I mentioned, chronic disease rates. Um, you know, at the end of the day, I wanna make this work simple for people. So usually I, I really like firelight because I think it's the most circadian friendly light. I like um, low EMF, no flicker red bulbs. Uh, what else? Blue light blockers, I'm a big fan of, just to, to make sure that you have control over any external light sources that you can't necessarily manipulate or change. Um, and so, yeah, I just think there, there are probably no pros to it, in my opinion, and, and a long list of cons. Where possible, 
uh, have candles, have a fire going. Try and have more natural sources of light as opposed to light bulbs. Yes, try to have more circadian-friendly light within your environment because I think that's that's one of the biggest changes you can make for your overall health. Um, and you know, when you look at the the circadian-friendly types of light, it's it's not that difficult to find, um, in my opinion. I think that living under artificial light is is something that's especially after sunset is causing a lot of symptoms in people and those symptoms over the course of 10 20 30 years is really causing a lot of the the chronic disease epidemic that we're seeing all across the world really sleep is another big thing for me um the the earlier you sleep the better generally um so because our our you know, circadian biology is fundamentally tied to sleep timing as well. So if you go to bed at 12, 12 um, a.m., midnight, for example, you're leaving so much on the table in terms of uh, hormone production, mental health, uh, energy levels. And so sleep timing is a big part of the discussion as well. Uh, so in other words, people who work night shift are not in a good space. No, I mean, night shift in the States, the world, or actually the World Health Organization has actually classified it as a, a carcinogen. So night shift is probably one of the most dangerous things that you can do for your overall health. So those pilots, so that's those pilots who are doing international flights. It, it's brutal. And, and there, you know, there are ways to mitigate the damage, so to speak. But over the long run, it's eventually going to catch up. Like at the end of the day, you can't hack Mother Nature. And if you go against her her fundamental principles, then th there are going to be consequences for that. We're, we're diurnal creatures, so we're meant to be awake during the day and asleep during the night. Ever since like the late 1800s when artificial light was introduced, um, I think you can pretty much track the rise of chronic disease as time goes on all the way up till this point um, almost perfectly because it, it's just such a drastic introduction into our lifestyles especially when you consider that our biology is not aligned with that because it's just isolated form of blue light. Um, in reality, our bodies are supposed to get the full light spectrum in, in all of its glory. So essentially what we want to do is we just want to maintain as much darkness as possible after sunset because that, that's just the way our, our circadian rhythm is supposed to function. That's the way our hormones are supposed to function. When you wake up um, from, from sleep, for example, your cortisol is at its highest. Um, and when you're about to go to bed after sunset, your, your melatonin is at its highest and your cortisol is, is at its lowest. So it's very important to underpin that. Um, and then when it comes to, I mean, if I were to explain it to a five-year-old, I'd probably say focus more on the red light spectrum. Don't have any lights that are really intense, uh, dim any overhead lights. The problem is that you're still not blocking artificial light from getting into the eyes and onto the skin. And those non-visual photoreceptors are very sensitive. I mean, they, you know, our eyes can sense, I believe, like one or five photons of light. So we are very sensitive to this type of light and light in general. Um, and so that's why I go to the degree of wearing blue light blockers, getting the red bulbs, candles, things, things like that. We are living in the, in the year 2024. We have iPads and iPhones and laptops and TV screens, etc. What now? <laughs> yeah, um, blue light blockers are my first go-to because like I said, it, it'll allow you to protect yourself from any external sources that you can't necessarily protect yourself from um, with like changing the settings on that stuff. And then, you know, in terms of technology, you have a lot of, of um, tools available. So if you have an iPhone, you can change your phone to red scale, like um, you, can, you can red tint your phone. That certainly blocks all the blue light, uh, all the blue light from it. Um, 
and there are other tools like one tap zap on Twitter that that blocks all non-native EMF it blocks all blue light so I, I think people have a lot more hope in this work they're not completely lost or, or destitute here um, they just need to find the right tools Zaid how much Sun is too much That is not an answer I can give from a general pers perspective. Um, it all depends on the person. So if you have somebody who has pale skin, no experience with sunlight, uses sunscreen and all these other things, then 10 minutes of eight UV index plus sunlight is, is bad for them, so to speak. So it all depends on context. For me, I can spend seven, eight hours in the sun, no problem. Um, the thing is, of course, you know, if, if you have um, a sunny day that's like 105 degrees, the UV index is at a 12 or 13, then you have to start taking advantage of, uh, you have to take advantage of things like clothing after you've got, gotten a little bit of sun. Um, take advantage of shade. Shade is like one of the best natural sunscreens, in my opinion. So there, there are ways around this, assuming that you know the right context. But of course, if you're you know, if, if it's winter time and the UV index is lower, then you can spend more time generally. If it's summer and it's higher, then you can spend less time. I think where I'm going with this is one of the big fear porn campaigns of the current time, and that's skin cancer. Why is melanoma and other skin cancers, why are they rising if people are spending less time in the sun? Again, going back to that solar callus, if you're talking about someone who has skin cancer, they're almost always going to have a chronically low vitamin D3 and they're not people who are adapted to sunlight exposure and they, they they barely have any melanin and they actually have melanin dysfunction so as a result that leads to a whole cascades of things uh like skin cancer because you know we know with melanoma it's just dysfunction in the melanocytes melanocytes are what actually create melanin so if you have the wrong lifestyle around light then you're going to set yourself up for these types of conditions when you get sunburned that's essentially too much sun Yes. According to your, to your current level of adaptation, that's too much sun. I, I am not an advocate of burning. Um, I think burning in general is bad because it's just an indicator that you've gone too far. Um, in the same way that if you try to lift 250 pounds off the squat rack with no gym experience <laughs> and you, 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 know, you injure your leg, that's, that's an indicator that you've gone too far. So, um, you know, there, there might be some people who, who say that sunburns aren't bad. I am not of that philosophy. I think that they are bad, but um, if you don't burn and you approach it with the right perspective, then you should be totally fine. Mm. But if you do squat that, you're a badass. <laughs> if you manage to squat that, then you are a badass. <laughs> Listen, we, we have recent data that shows that the Pfizer and Moderna, Moderna vaccines specifically were actually, um, uh, they, they contained plasmid DNA when they weren't supposed to contain plasmid DNA. They were only supposed to contain mRNA. And the long-term implications of that are staggering because when you have plasmid DNA running through your system, that stuff doesn't get disposed of within the body. It actually gets implemented into your own DNA, your own genome. So, you know, from that to um, the myocarditis, pericarditis, young people are suffering from more cardiovascular symptoms than ever before. Um, telling people to stay indoors, not getting vitamin D3, wearing masks that have environmental pollutants like microplastics and things of that nature. I mean, just all around terrible, terrible situation. There's something seriously wrong with how centralized medicine operates in general. I think it's been infiltrated by big food, big pharma, other various conglomerates. And, um, you know, with the whole vitamin D3 discussion in COVID, 
I mean, we, we have research to show that vitamin D3 and, and near-infrared and red light actually stops COVID replication, the virus's replication at every stage of the disease process. So considering that, people could, if they just got outside, got their skin in the game and raised their vitamin D3 naturally, we would see dramatically less rates, which would then result in dramatically less vaccination rates. But then again, you have an incentive structure that wants people to get vaccinated as, as opposed to the alternative. I'm a big fan of going back into the past to try to study how, um, you know, centralized medicine approached these sort of things maybe like 100 plus years ago. And heliotherapy was a huge thing, just sunbathing patients in general for um, tuberculosis, for all sorts of like sicknesses and conditions, and um, also for, for battling rickets, which was a huge problem in the late 1800s, early 1900s. So that's a, that's a very important point. This is something not many people know about, but if you take a look at most conventional glass, it actually artificially manipulates the full light spectrum in a negative way. So it will block a lot of the UVA and UVB. It'll block a lot of the red and near infrared, far infrared light, and it will actually concentrate um, the blue light. So essentially it's just rendering you blue light toxic. And I'm sure, I don't know if you've seen this picture of this um, like 40, 50 uh, year trucker who, who spent 40 to 50 years, you know, driving trucks with the windows closed, um, you actually see one side of his face completely damaged, the other side completely fine. And that's an indicator of how um, glass can actually uh, manipulate the full light spectrum in harmful ways. Is it better to drive your car with the window down? Yes, so anything with windows um, inside the house, inside of hospitals, inside of the, uh, the car, even opening it a little bit will actually change the full light spectrum in, in beneficial ways. Now, people don't think about that. It's very, it's actually a really good point. Yes, I mean, same concept with sunglasses or contacts. Um, th these, these tools, so to speak, will, will artificially manipulate the, the light in such a way that it'll focus most of the blue um, and it will alter the other beneficial light wavelengths and it'll prevent you from gaining any benefit, really. If you spend a lot of time in the sun, you start getting wrinkly earlier on in life. I think that's a result of other lifestyle factors and confounding factors involved. And I think that's a result of people approaching light incorrectly. So what, what we need to understand is that mother nature is wise. She never makes a mistake. So within the full light spectrum, red is always balanced with, or blue is always balanced with red. And the study of red light and photobiomodulation is extensive. It's gone back into the early 18, uh, 1900s. Um, and red is actually what's regenerative to the skin. So we know that red light therapy actually um, Im improves collagen stores within the skin. It removes those wrinkles altogether over time and it, it just allows you to get to a more natural, younger state in regards to like skin elasticity and overall health. Give me an average day in the life of Zaid. <laughs> um, I wake up, I immediately get some sun, whether it's- Hold on, if it's what time? Sorry, what time? You didn't say. I mean, that'll vary. I generally like to wake up anywhere between 6.30 to 7.30. Um, you know, I like to keep it within a tighter range, but 6.30 to 7.30 is, is the time frame. And immediately I wake up with, with light, natural light from the sun. So if it's too cloudy um, or if it's raining, sometimes I'll go outside and stand under the patio. I'll open the window to make sure that the full light spectrum comes in. Um, if it's a sunny day, then most of my skin is exposed. I'm actively sunbathing for two, three, four hours within the day. And 
you know, I hydrate with spring water, mineralized spring water. I make sure to get some form of movement in, whether it's walking, training, um, kettlebells, barbell. And then from there, I just, you know, writing, podcast. So grounding, I'm a big fan of as well. It, it has a long history too. So just like photobiomodulation, like these other areas, um, grounding or earthing, whatever you want to call it, has a long history. And I think if you look at evolutionary history, um, our, our ancestors were directly connected to the land. And I think there's a real uh, biological benefit to connecting your bare feet to either soil, grass, sand, anything that's naturally, any natural earth surface that is conductive, because then we can get into the discussion of free electrons, the living matrix, because that's a, that's a fascinating area. Tell me a bit more about that. So free electrons for our body are extremely beneficial um, in terms of reducing inflammation, uh, creating just overall systemic function. If, if you look at like the electron transport chain, it's just a chain essentially transporting electrons in order to produce ATP energy. So when you ground your, your feet to a bare earth surface that is conductive, you're getting a flood of free electrons into the body through a system called the living matrix, which actually shuttles those free electrons to any part of the body that needs them. So if you look into the research on grounding or earthing, um, we're talking about reducing of, re reduction of chronic inflammation, quicker wound healing rates, um, better mental health, better alignment with your circadian rhythm, so better sleep, better mood and energy. Um, it's kind of like sunlight and it's, it goes together because it touches almost everything within our biology. I'm always a big fan of animal meat, sustainably raised grass-fed, grass-finished meat, um, wild-caught salmon, pasture-raised chicken, things of that nature because this is, uh, you know, this is the food that we evolved to eat and protein is such a significant topic these days in regards to health, especially as you get older into age. What I'm advocating for is, is being more in alignment with, with Mother Nature and how we evolved because, I mean, if you take a look at how our body works, we're bipedal creatures who are meant to sprint, run, we're meant to eat various things. I think we're omnivores, but we're meant to eat animal protein as well. Um, we're meant to be under sunshine, we're meant to follow the, the light and dark cycle that the sun provides for us. And um, yeah, really just aligning ourselves with nature because if you look at how modern society is built, it's completely disconnected and divorced from nature. So that's where I think a lot of the problems occur. Seasonal affective disorder is, is a huge thing, especially in the States. Um, so if you go to like places like Oregon or Seattle where it's always dark and, and rainy, levels of depression and anxiety are through the roof. And what's interesting is that sunlight is actually, sunbathing is one of the key ways that we can tackle anxiety and depression because through that Palm C system that I mentioned earlier in, the, in this episode, um, one of those peptides that's actually produced is called beta endorphin. So it's an opioid peptide. And it is one of the reasons why we're biologically driven to be under sunlight, why we're addicted to it. And it also has some powerful anti-inflammatory and, and other um, you know, uh, endorphin producing effects. So I, I think that's a big part of the discussion too. Is napping during the day recommended? Sure, yeah, I, I think siesta culture is, is big in, in many parts of the world. Um, I like to nap anywhere between noon to about 2.30 p.m. That's really the window that I like to aim for. Aim for. Um, and then I keep my naps to around 20 minutes. I don't like to go over 20 minutes because then I just get groggy. Well, just on, on that, uh, when do you think is the optimal time to, to gym? This can depend on, some, on the person, but I personally like to work out in the morning 
or a little bit towards midday. If you look at circadian biology, it, it actually looks like 5 to 7 p.m. in the evening is actually most optimal in terms of like um, uh, fine motor skills, uh, accuracy, uh, th things like that. So, you know, the, the case can be made for either morning, midday, or, or evening. Just as long as you don't go too late, like 8, 9, 10 p.m., then I see no problem with it. What is a good amount of time to sleep? Uh, anything above seven and a half hours, in my opinion, with a cutoff of around 10 hours, depending on the person. If you're an athlete like LeBron James, then 12 hours of sleep is probably necessary. But if you're just a regular person who doesn't train much, then 10 plus hours of sleep can indicate some sort of like depression or anxiety. But generally seven and a half to nine and a half for people is what I recommend. Bioindividuality is a big part of the discussion. Like everyone's different. Um, I do think that anything above seven, seven and a half hours is, is the minimum that you want to get because once you start getting into sub seven hours, then you start to see in the literature that, you know, rates of neurodegeneration, heart disease, Basically, every chronic disease under the sun tends to detract with, with that. I, you know, I despise um, hustle culture and hustle porn. I, I absolutely despise it because I think there are better ways to be productive. Um, for example, if you're focusing more on your strengths as opposed to your weaknesses, then, you know, things come more naturally to you. Like, um, my, my strength is everything health and wellness, so I don't have to be um, whipped or lashed in order to be productive. Um, and with the time that I am working, I'm way more productive than what somebody who's not interested in, in it would be. You were talking earlier about the water that you drink. Yeah. So spring water is, is the creme de la creme of water, in my opinion. Um, of, of course, going back to the evolutionary history, but also considering various things such as um, the energy capacity of the water that, that, is, uh, that is a big part of it, the, the structure of the water. So we can talk about the water vortex, the work of uh, Victor Schauberger, the, walk of uh, the work of Dr. Gerald Pollack. That's a, a deep rabbit hole that is incredibly fascinating in my mind. In, in what way? Tell me a bit about that. So, for example, um, Victor Schauberger was, uh, he, he was alive during the early 1900s, but he was an Austrian forester who was obsessed with water. And as a result, he actually found out that water actually works in this fascinating way where it works on something called implosion energy as opposed to explosion energy. So if you think about a hurricane or a tornado, the amount of force that's produced from that, that is using implosion energy. So it's like it's Mother Nature's chief method of energy production. And when you look into the, the life of Victor Schauberger, he, um, he was famous for using those principles from nature in regards to water and actually implementing them into technology to the extent that he was actually approached by the Nazi party and Adolf Hitler to actually create flying saucers for the SS. So <laughs> it's, um, it's one of those things that takes a lot of study, but the water vortex and, and implosion energy is, is um, an area where we can definitely dive into for the exploration of free energy as a society. I've actually seen videos of people powering engines with water, but that sort of stuff gets suppressed quite quickly. Oh, very quickly. I mean, you talk about big oil, um, big pharma. I mean, these these industries have have their noses in everything that that people are are doing in regards to trying to innovate. And you know, if you are somebody who is trying to innovate in that direction, please keep your keep your work under wraps, because um, 
it's there's a high likelihood that some form of manipulation is going to come your way what you're telling me is that water is actually way more powerful than what we think yes yes i mean and, and we all know this intuitively like if you look at um a raging river think about the amount of power that's involved in that um, nobody would jump into a raging river and just think that they're going to be fine, right? Like, we all fundamentally understand the power of hurricanes, the power of tsunamis, the power of uh, the water vortex. So I think it's uh, it's just an important area where we need to shine more light on for people. Are you a fan of swimming in the ocean? Big time. Yeah, that's one of my favorite things to do in Southern California. Uh, for many reasons, obviously, the sunlight, the grounding, the ocean water, that comes in one package. Um, you're getting the minerals, all the magnesium and, and all the other trace minerals from the seawater. And, um, and and that's been proven for things like psoriasis, eczema, uh, other skin conditions. But, you know, just being connected to nature in general, I think, is a, is a big part of people's lifestyles that we should really focus more on. A anything to connect yourself more to nature, I think, just has uh, upside. Even though it might be inconvenient with time, energy, money, at the end of the day, you're going to get a massive return that you can then utilize once you go back into um, society. And then hopefully you do keep that as a habit going forward because it's immensely helpful. Yeah, I don't buy that argument that when people say I don't have time for that. It's, it's funny how that works. You know, we we convince ourselves that we don't have time, energy or money or any of these other resources. Um, and it, it also ties into the idea of like there being priorities, like multiple priorities. In my opinion, there's only one priority. Obviously, you have to juggle certain things, but you know, within your health, there's one priority. Within your work, one priority. And I'm a big fan of uh, the one thing by, um, I believe the author's name is Gary Keller, so that's uh, something that stands out to me. I do advocate for nicotine. Nicotine isolated in, in and of itself actually has a lot of health benefits. So it's a great nootropic. It's great for cognitive enhancement. It's actually been shown to protect against um, dementia, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, and it's anti-parasitic, it's anti-fungal. I mean, it, it actually has a long list of health benefits that not a lot of people know about. I'm usually a fan of like nicotine toothpicks, nicotine gum, um, nicotine pouches that just have nicotine salt in them without any fillers. Those I'm a big fan of. You know, every drug, th there is no free lunch. So every drug, every substance mm. has a pro and a con to it. But um, if you use nicotine or caffeine wisely, for example, I mean, it's, it's some powerful stuff that can really move the needle for you. I want to chat to you about caffeine. Sure. So, I mean, um, if we're talking about benefits first, I think that, you know, it's an amazing nootropic. It, uh, it has been studied to reduce um, your likelihood of, of, you know, acquiring certain chronic diseases like the, the neurodegenerative diseases like I mentioned. Um, it's great for metabolism from what I've seen. So the literature is pretty strong on caffeine. The negatives are there. They, they are absolutely real. So... We, we do have to couch this topic with the, with the understanding that everyone is different. So there are about 43 different genetic caffeine or um, different genes for genetic um, caffeine metabolism. So for me, I'm a slow metabolizer of caffeine. So if I have a cup of regular coffee at like 5 p.m., I'm going to stay up until like 12, 1, 1 a.m. But other people, they don't have that sort of effect because they're able to shuttle it more quickly. Um, but what I've been diving deeper into is uh, something called perizanthine coffee. And so when you consume caffeine, it actually gets 80% of that caffeine gets broken down into perizanthine. So it's just a metabolite of caffeine, but it actually displays all of the benefits of caffeine without any of the negatives. So I'm a big fan of a company called Rarebird. 
um, because they supply like the, the best perizanthine coffee from what I've seen. I guess I should also ask you your views on, on alcohol. How do they affect health? Or how do they, how does it affect health? Well, we do know that alcohol is a neurotoxin. Um, it, it is a toxic substance. Um, and, and really a lot of substances can be viewed from that perspective. But I think all things in moderation is generally my recommendation. Um, you know, alcohol can either enhance your life if approached wisely, or it can absolutely destroy your life if approached rec recklessly. So it's all context, it's all individual dependent. Um, but I like alcohol from time to time. It, it just enhances my life. Obviously the uh, stereotypical health is wealth. I think uh, when people hear that, they kind of, uh, they're not connected to it in the sense that they should be because your health is the foundation for everything that you create in your life, whether it's business, family, um, you know, the, the amount of energy you have that you, you can use to seek opportunities. So health is wealth is one of the most important things in my mind. And then uh, I, I think people really underestimate the power of consistency. So in whatever I've done, I have been obsessive. I have been absolutely consistent with it, whether it's the podcasts, soccer from an early age, um, anything related to health or health coaching. So, you know, dedicating your life to one or two things and really developing that mastery over, over your craft, that's a huge part of the discussion that has largely gone to the wayside considering modern society and, um, you know, kind of this dabbler mentality that we find in a lot of people. How can I follow your work? Um, you can visit the 2AM podcast on all platforms, mainly YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. And then if you want to connect with me personally, um, Zaid K. Dahaj, I'm sure you'll have the links in the bio, but Z-A-I-D-K-D-A-H-H-A-J. That's um, the handle for both uh, Instagram and Twitter. That's mainly where you can find me. Your title, the 2AM podcast, is obviously ironic. It's very ironic. I've, I've had this discussion so many times. And it's actually, so here's, here's the story behind it. So my co-host came up with the name. And the reason why we named it the 2AM Podcast is because whenever you look at the best conversations that you've had in your life, yes. they typically happened, happen around the closest people that you have at 2AM at like a campsite or somewhere else. Those late night conversations. Yeah, when everybody else has gone to bed. Exactly. That's like, that's a special time. Obviously, <laughs> with my focus on sleep, it doesn't happen often, but when it does, it's, it's a party. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.